Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul. If we don't know each other, um, it's great to be back. And if you did not know that I was gone, that means you've been around even less than I have this summer. But anyway, so glad that you're here. And I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We were right in the middle of our summer sermon series. So you say that three times real fast, I dare you, right? Our summer sermon series in Galatians chapter 5, where we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you can, willing, able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word. This morning, we're going to read sort of the whole section here to get the the flow and the context. But we're going to begin at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess as your people that when we come across these lists, we are devastated. We, we read about these vices and we say, that's me. We read about these fruits of the Spirit, and we say, I wish that was me. But Lord, both responses take us to the same place. Jesus, will you do this work of grace within us? These are your work in us. And we ask now that we would be transformed and changed anew by your Spirit. And it's in the Holy Spirit's name, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. So we have two lists here, right? The naughty list and the nice list. The virtues and the vices. And so here's the question of the day from sort of Captain Obvious, right? When you read these two lists, and by the way, I read them slowly on purpose, right? Just so you can get the, the full weight of them. When you look at these two lists, which of these lists do you wish characterized your life and relationships? Parents, what about your kids? Which one? Couples, your marriages or your families. How about your relationships with your friends or your coworkers or your next door neighbor? Which of these lists would you rather or most exemplify and characterize your life? Even if you are here this morning and you are Like, you you don't have any clue what's happening around here, spiritually speaking. You're not even particularly religious. Somebody just brought you. You don't know why you're here. Even you know, right? This is a no-brainer. 
But let's be brutally honest, can we, just for a second? Because we're going to need to be honest in order to receive everything God means for us to receive through his grace in this text this morning. When you think about your life over the past 18 months, which of these lists most characterize you and your relationships, your conversations, your social media accounts, your interactions? Are they more characterized by anger or strife, divisions, conflict, angst, worry? If so, welcome, right? This is why we are in this chapter, one of the reasons why we're in this chapter in this season, studying the fruit of God's Spirit. It just seems such a timely piece for us as the people of God as we consider the time that we live. Now, if you're coming to a place this morning, or maybe you've already been there, or maybe you're coming right now, and you're looking at these lists, and you say, well, Pastor Paul, come on, let's be, let's be honest here. I do want my life to look like that, right? Then, then, then a caution for us, okay, if that's the case. One, we should not approach these lists, or this list of the fruit of the Spirit, like we would some sort of set of New Year's resolutions. Or this year, we're going to do better, and work harder, and try more, and finally get it right, and this time, it's going to be different. And the reason we don't want to approach them this way is, guess what? That doesn't work. Never does. The reason it doesn't work, though, is because bearing fruit isn't the ultimate goal. That's not Paul's central purpose. The fruit of the Spirit are important, but they're a byproduct of the ultimate goal. And let me explain what I mean. See, the fruit of the Spirit are not just aspirational, but they're situational. And here's what I mean. They're not just merely things that we want to aspire to. Yes, I do want you to aspire to them. I do. I want to pray that God will work these things into our lives. But they're much more situational, meaning they are things or qualities or fruit that God builds into our hearts and lives, weaves them into our lives as we come in closer proximity to him. See, the primary goal Paul sets before us is to nurture and pursue your relationship with Jesus Christ. Commune with the person who lives inside of you. That, that, that's a novel concept for some of us, that the, the living God lives inside of us if we have placed our faith in Christ. He lives in us by his spirit. And as we cultivate that relationship as our primary goal, then it's interesting product of our lives. But if you, if you pursue fruit apart from pursuing Christ, you won't get either. So we have to think about these lists as kind of an assessment tool, right? There are, they are a mirror. As we read them, they reflect back into our lives and, to, and show us ourselves what have we actively been cultivating in our life. What's been capturing our hearts and minds and attention? And, and what, have, what kind of relationships have we been building within our own spirit? And, and these lists will reveal those rather quickly. And so we've been taking these fruit one at a time and just wringing them like a washcloth for all they're worth. And today, we are up to kindness. Now, admittedly, let me say something about kindness, right? Because some of you have already turned down the volume a little bit when you hear that. See, kindness is not a quality our culture or world values very much, is it? 
In fact, I, I would venture to say for many of us, it's not a quality we admire very much. Some of you might now even be saying, that's all well and fine, Pastor Paul, right? This is not a time to be nice. Have you seen what's going on in the world? It's a time to be tough. Time to speak out. It's a time to be combative. Time to have no holds barred in the cultural arena. And Paul, I think, is going to show us a better way. So there's two points that we want to make this morning about kindness, and here they are. Number one, we're first of all going to talk about kindness defined. And then secondly, we're going to look at kindness demonstrated. So there we go. Kindness defined. Let's jump in there. The word for kindness here in Galatians is krestos. It literally means good or easy or comfortable, or I think even better, to not press in. Now, Paul uses this same word for kindness in Titus 3 when he talks about where kindness originates. See, kindness originates in the heart of God. Listen to Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving, what? Kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when we take this idea of kindness and understand it means to not press in or to crush, you can see what Paul's saying in here, right? Paul is saying, instead of God pressing in on us, or crushing us because of our sin, which, by the way, we totally deserve, he instead comes to us with what? Mercy. He comes to us with kindness because of not overlooking our sin, right? Not because he's overlooking our sin, but because he's counting our sin to the account of Jesus. Instead of crushing you, he crushed him on your behalf. Paul says this is the ultimate demonstration of the kindness of God. And so I think based upon that, we can come up with a little working definition here. And here, here's what it is. I don't have a special slide for it, so you might actually have to write it down. So here we go. Number one, kindness is God's impulse to show us mercy, particularly when that mercy is undeserved. Now let's flesh this out just for a minute. Very familiar passage for some of you. Maybe some of you have been reading Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. And if you have, this, this text from Matthew 11, 29 and 30 um, sort of highlights or is the theme of that book. And let me read it for us. Matthew, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now listen to this. For my yoke is what? easy and my burden is light. What is the word for easy? Kind. Yoke is kind, Jesus says. What does he mean? I think what Jesus means here is to tell us, Christian, I'm not going to make it difficult for you to come to me. You're not going to have to jump through hoops you're not going to have to go through an obstacle course. You're not going to have to wade your way through quicksand. I'm not going to stand between you and me if you just merely acknowledge your need for me. 
in your sin, turn to me. In your sin, just confess your desperate need for mercy. Because Jesus says, my kindness, it clears the way. He's just moving boulders and obstacles off of our path as quick as we can erect them. You see, a lot of times we think because of our shame and guilt that, that, that there is this obstacle between us and God and that we've got to clean ourselves up. That we have to like figure our life out first and get our spiritual resolutions in order or bear the fruit of the Spirit and then come to, to Christ. Church is the exact opposite. Jesus says, my yoke is kind, so just come. And the only qualification is to know that you don't deserve to come. And that's the whole point. This is what I think Paul is getting at in Romans 2, 4. Listen to this. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. To himself. One of my favorite movies made back in the 80s, and there were a couple of redeemable things from that decade, I, I maintain, um, is a movie called The Mission starring Robert De Niro. And in this movie, De Niro plays this slave trader named Mendoza. And he is a despicable man. His livelihood is going into the jungles there in South America and capturing natives of the land, imprisoning them, enslaving them, and selling them to the powers that be. Well, as part of the story, Mendoza meets a Jesuit priest, and he ends up converting to Roman Catholicism. But part of his penance, what he has to do before he is admitted fully into the order, so to speak, is that as a part of his penance, he has to carry around on his back the weapons of his trade, his instruments of evil. And so he has to carry around his sword and his armor and his shield. And he has to do this for days. And he's hiking up in the mountains and he's doing all these particular chores. And the whole point is that Mendoza is trying so hard to pay back God. To, to, to somehow assuage his conscience, to be reminded of what he has done and what has to happen for him to get back in the graces of God. And let me just say, it's a wonderful movie, but it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. See, it's not kindness that's beckoning Mendoza at that point. It's fear. It's guilt. It's shame. It's this man-centered desire natural to ourselves that we all carry around. Surely, Pastor Paul, there's something I can do to fix myself and make myself better. It can't be as simple as the grace of God. But let's be honest, church. There's a lot of times, and maybe this is for some of you this morning, you are carrying around not a 100-pound weight, but what seems like a 1,000-pound weight in your heart. There is some besetting sin. There is some vice. There's a pattern. There's a struggle. You're, you're trying to do better. Oh, you've been trying to do better, but you were continuing to fail, and you feel shame and guilt, and this is doing the exact opposite of what it should do. It's keeping you from Christ. What would Christ have you know principally about his kindness this morning? It's his, his kindness that is drawing you in. It is his kindness that 
throws open the doors and removes every obstacle and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think about it this way, and Dane Ortland uses this image in his book. We are the body of Christ, church. We are the body of Christ, and Jesus is our head. Think about your own body for a second when something is wrong with one of the parts of your body. Let's say that you break your arm. And you just don't break your arm, okay, but you like have a compound fracture where there's no kids in here, is there, right? Okay, that's kind of sticking up out of your skin, right? Now, what are you going to do at that point? You're not going to look at your arm and say, arm, what is going on here? Let's, I, I, don't, I don't have time to go to the doctor. Let's go home and like put a little Neosporin on that and some gauze, right? No, you're going to get down to TOC as fast as you can so they can fix what's wrong with your body. Why? Because you like your body, right? You, 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 you want to take care of it. It's, it's, it's important. This is how it is, church, in the body of Christ, except Jesus is the head body that's suffering struggling dare I say it even sinning his his heart is not moved towards rejection and pushing you away his heart beckons for you your your neediness your brokenness at that point is what attracts his grace to you so don't go around with these band-aids and Neosporin spiritually come to remember church last thing i'll say before we leave this point that this is the kindness of god that he sent his son jesus christ to be broken for you to be crushed for you to be pressed in for you so that you might have life forgiveness and a clear conscience in him so that's kindness defined now secondly as we move to the second point kindness demonstrated this is where we want to say, well, okay, I, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with you here, Pastor Paul. I'm trying to keep up with the Apostle Paul here. What, what does this look like in my life? Particularly in terms of personal relationships, human-to-human relationship and interaction. Now, let, let me say this from the top. If kindness is the impulse to show mercy, then when we think about human kindness or person-to-person kindness— we're really asking, in what venues or avenues does God give us this gift and capacity and ability in the Spirit to walk out kindness with others? And so there, there's, there's two areas of application I want to drill down in here with you. First of all, we want to talk about kindness and comfort, and then secondly, kindness and conflict, okay? So there's two little subpoints under this bigger point of kindness demonstrated. Let's talk about kindness and comfort first. Here's a question. In rhetorical answer to yourself, between you and God, when you are struggling spiritually, when you are wrestling with sin, what is your initial impulse to do with that? Do you put that one on your, on your Twitter feed? You post that, that one on your Facebook status. You take a picture of you in like agony and post it on Instagram. Is that what you do? No. Right? When we are dealing with that sort of thing, we want to run. We want to hide. 
We want to cower in the corner. We want to look around metaphorically and say, who saw me do that? I want to sort of kind of keep that on the down low. I want to sort of, I don't want to go into the light. I want to run away from the light. And, and here is why this is such a, while that might feel like a natural response, it is completely counterintuitive to gospel behavior. Listen to what Joe Rigney says in his article recently this week on Desiring God. He says, hidden sins destroy Christians because they're hidden. Far too often, Christians wallow in the darkness, smothered by the guilt of sins that they are too ashamed to name. You get that? It's impossible to put to death, though, a sin you won't confess, which means cultivating the right environment for honesty and confession is essential in a Christian community. Well, what's he fundamentally saying? In order to deal, to deal rightly with our sin... In order, in order to, to address what's happening in our hearts, we have to bring it to the light. That's with God, oftentimes others. But the question is, when it comes time, and you know in the depths of your heart, you know what, Pastor Paul, I, I've, I've got to talk to somebody about this. I've got to talk to a pastor, I need to talk to an elder, I need to talk to my friend, my spouse, my community group member. When, when, when you go to... When you decide it's time to go and to talk to someone, do you look, though, for someone who's going to get angry with you? Do, you? do you look for someone to talk to that you know is going to shame you? Who's going to mock you? Who's going to, to make fun of you? Who's going to scold you? Who's going to throw on the guilt trip? Is that who you and I gravitate to? Absolutely not, right? We look for someone safe. We look for someone who is going to be empathetic. We are going to look for someone who listens to us and tries to understand the depth of our struggle. This is universal, by the way. I think this is true for everyone. And understand, this is not to excuse sin. But what you and I desperately need, whether we know it or not, is someone to love us in our sin. What all of us desperately want is a gospel presence. Rigney goes on to say this, gospel presence is designed to create an environment that invites people to confess their sins, to be honest about their struggles, to overcome the natural aversion they have to exposing their shame. In other words, gospel presence aims to create that graciously paradoxical environment that is safe for sinners, but not for sin. They are welcome Sin is not. Christian, I believe if the Holy Spirit lives in you, that is what all of us, intuitively, in the depths of the most spiritual part of our hearts and lives, that's what we really want. We want somebody who can look at the depths of our sin and say, I still love you. And I accept you. I don't love and accept this thing that you're doing. I, I want to help you eradicate it. I want to partner up with you. I want to I I pray with you. I want to walk alongside of you. All of us, don't we? Don't we desperately want that? And church, my, my prayer for us as a church community is we would be that kind of community. But the gateway to this is what Paul calls kindness. 
Let me, let me tell you how, illustrate how I think this works. One of our pandemic shows over the last 18 months, and, and I am unashamed to admit this, is the show Dr. Pimple Popper. Have anybody seen this? Okay. I, the way that some of you are laughing right now, you definitely have seen it. But if you haven't, if, you, if you've seen it, you know you've seen it. That's all I'm going to say. She's a dermatologist. It's this reality show, and patients come to her with the most severe of skin afflictions. And if you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. This is not like a little mole on the inside of your, of your hand or something like this. This is like stuff people have been living with for years. Growths, lesions, bumps, hideous skin conditions, oftentimes so severe that people are afraid to leave their house. Maybe they went to a doctor 10 years before and they couldn't do anything for them. And they finally sort of dragged themselves into this reality show, probably because they're paid a lot of money. But you get, you get the idea, right? And what's amazing is that you just see it when they come in. They're just covered in shame. They're like, I've got this thing growing out of my neck or my back, or I've got this thing on my skin, or I've got these horns growing out of my head. That, that was one episode. That really did happen. And, and what's interesting is Dr. Dr. Lee, that's her name. Dr. Lee comes in. And then within about 30 seconds, she totally disarms the situation. She comes and puts, well, this was pre-COVID, her hand on their shoulder, right? And pats them and say, honey, what's happening here? What's going on? What's this been like for you? I know this must have been terrible. In other words, what is she? She's so kind. But her kindness doesn't stop there. Her kindness simply gives her an entry point so that she can put them on that table and take out her scalpel or her knife or that cool freezing thing, whatever that thing is called. We need one of those around our house, absolutely. And she begins to squeeze, to cut, to eradicate. But see, that procedure never would have happened apart from her bedside manner. Christian, kindness is the bedside manner for the believer. It's the key to entering into where people are hurting and suffering and sinning and needing help. Kindness is the key to comfort. Let me ask you this. How kind have you been this season? When you see your brother and sister in Christ struggling, that person in your community group that's wrestling with this thing or that thing in their life, or maybe there's someone who's just like, every time I talk to them, they talk about this sin and they'll talk about this struggle or talk about their marriage or this. Do you sit in self-righteous judgment? Or does who you are, your kindness, does it beckon them to open up their heart and their life? I, I pray we can be this kind of community. I, I think we are in so many ways. I pray that we would continue to grow more and more into this. So that's kindness and comfort. But here's, here's one that's maybe equally or more difficult. Let's talk about kindness and conflict. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to flash this on the screen as well. But let me give you the context here for a second. Paul had literally given his blood, sweat, and tears for the church in Corinth. You know, we, scholars think that Paul probably wrote four letters to the church in Corinth, two of which the Holy Spirit preserved. We'll find this out in the fall when we're preaching through the book of Romans, but Paul was actually in Corinth when he wrote the book of Romans. 
Their behavior clearly drove him to write about justification by faith, right? They were a messed up bunch. They came from rank pagan backgrounds. They had no spiritual moral framework. They were divisive. There were issues in the church, and Paul laid it on the line. Lived with them for months, for years. Labored, wrote letters, prayed for them. And do you know how the church in Corinth paid him back? Well, 2 Corinthians tell us, tells us, right? They said mean things about him. They brought up accusations against him. They're like, Paul's in it for the buck, right? That collection that's going to Jerusalem? No, no, no. Paul, Paul's taking a little bit off the top, putting his own pocket. Paul, listen, he is, I mean, no, Paulus, he looks pretty good, but Paul, he is an unimpressive physical specimen. He doesn't speak well. I mean, I know he writes a mean letter, but like he's just completely unimpressive in his physical performance. This is how they repaid the kindness of Paul. How would Paul respond? Now, I want you to think for a second, not if you're involved in some conflict, because I would venture to say almost every one of us are at any given time, right? But think about your instinct in those times of conflict, those things that you're tempted towards to do, whether it's to lash out or retaliate or post something mean or say something mean or, or whatever your default mode is. And then I want you to compare that to what Paul does at his lowest moment when they are attacking him. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, We put no obstacle in any way, anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In other words, I know what you've been saying and doing. I'm not going to do anything to retaliate or respond, but let me tell you what I am going to do in order to put myself above reproach. This is what Paul says. By great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless night. In other words, Paul says, I'm going to endure them all. Then he says, by purity, knowledge, patience, and guess what? Kindness. The Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God. Paul says, here is how I'm going to respond to this conflict. I'm going to outkind you. I'm going I'm I'm to demonstrate patience and kindness and forbearance and forgiveness. And by the way, this does not mean that there's not confrontation. Please understand something. This kindness does not mean that there are no sharp words or corrections or rebukes. It's much more, though, in how you do it. See, how you do something, and we've said this over and over again, the scriptures bear this out, 1 Corinthians 13 bears this out, how you do something is just as important oftentimes as what you do. Listen to 2 Timothy 2. Paul is instructing Timothy how he is to correct his opponents. Think about this one in your conflict. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but what? Kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Listen to this. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. These things are not antithetical, folks. To, to, to be a faithful Christian, we have to correct in kindness. We have to be kind as we are correcting. 
Do you know that you can be kind in a disagreement? Do you know that you can be kind in a lawsuit? Do you know that you can be kind in a mediation or a trial? See, we've referenced this here before. Just remember last year. Who can forget the trial of the woman police officer in Texas who was convicted of barging into the wrong home and shooting an unarmed black man? And this man's family at the trial, at the sentencing, what? They demonstrated extraordinary kindness. They extended extraordinary kindness in that court scene, at that sentencing, by extending and offering public forgiveness. Even as justice was being served, they're not antithetical, they're the gospel. So how might God want to use your kindness in the same way? In some relationship, in some conflict, in some intractable situation. Now understand, kindness will not fix all of your problems. But guess what? You won't get anywhere without it. Now you may be sitting there this morning saying, well, Pastor Paul, that's all great and good. That's not the way I roll. And I want to simply pull the Dr. Phil on you and ask, well, how is that working for you, friend? Right? But see, when we withhold kindness, not only is it a pragmatic issue, but even more than that, we miss the opportunity to walk out the gospel when we fail to be kind. Because kindness supremely is demonstrated where? You know where. It's the cross. It's the supreme demonstration of kindness. Luke 23, 32, listen to this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Place called the skull, they were crucified. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Now let me pause there for a second. We know from the other gospels that these two thieves in the initial part of the crucifixion process, which was many hours, six, eight, nine hours, we're not completely sure. But we know at the beginning of this crucifixion process, as they all three were being crucified, the criminals did what? They mocked Jesus. They heaped scorn upon him. And then they hung there, and then they watched Jesus. Luke goes on and tells us this. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's saying that to everyone, all the players involved. What extraordinary kindness, even in death. I don't think it's any coincidence that Luke then mentions to us later in the narrative, verse 42. And the second thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Guys, I cannot wait for that conversation one day. What, what brother, what, what beckoned you on the cross? What, what was it that you saw over that six-hour window of time that swayed you to trust this man who was dying on the cross for you? I, I believe, at least in part, it was the kindness of Jesus. Kind as he entrusted his mom to John and entrusted John to his mom. Kind as he 
said, you, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even in death, Jesus embodied kindness. And this is why Paul says, it is kindness, the very kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. It was kindness that led Jesus to endure the cross, putting aside the shame for the joy that was set before him. And it's kindness that God calls his people to as well. If you are struggling this morning, Four Oaks, with kindness, and wrapping your brain around that, and, and thinking about what that means for your relationships and your marriage and your parenting and all of those things. Don't pull the spiritual resolution and walk out of here today and say, well, this time it's going to be different. I'm going to be kind today. Oh, yes, I am. No, no, no. Think about the kindness of Jesus and pray that as God opens your eyes to the kindness of Jesus, he weds it and weaves it into the fabric of your heart that you too might be an agent for kindness and change for the glory of God. Let's pray.